Hey, let's go, let's go. Here we go, let's go. Mary, how are we doing back there? We rolling, Mary? Oculi, right? My eyes. That's third week in Lent. Here we go. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 20, 28. Heavenly Father, who sent your only Son to us sinners and laid on him the grievous burden of our sins, which took him to the cross, grant that we may see and know the glory of your holy love. Give us faith in him that is not shaken in adversity or daunted by the threats of it, but let us ever follow steadfastly the way that leads to perfect fellowship with him, and so with you, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There you go. You're halfway through Lent. How are you doing? Everybody okay? This is normally about the time where you uh, stagger a little bit, or you might have a little more temptation, or you might have missed a thing or two along the way. Everybody doing okay? Next week, you remember, the rose color comes out. It'll lighten up just a little bit. The Lord will be here to keep strengthening you, so it's always nice to go to the Holy Supper as well. And... uh, Remember, you got baptized. Just keep going. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Uh, Let's see. Anything else going on we should talk about? Remember to come Wednesday for dinner and then also for prayers at 7. So dinner at 6, prayers at 7, confession at 5.30 if you want to go, 5.30 to 6.30. All right. I gave you this. I talked about this just a little bit last week, Joe Olowski. There's all kinds of conversation among Christians right now about if the world is so rough, Maybe we should just withdraw, not just monks and nuns, but maybe whole families or whole communities. Um, You know, you can make arguments about this either way, but a couple of things at least to think about. One is, if you just sort of read through this, you realize that it was 100 times worse in ancient Rome uh, when the first Christians were around. And to be a Christian could turn into a death sentence very, very easily. There were lots of religions, and there were lots of civic requirements, including that you offered to pagan gods. And if somebody wanted to get rid of you, it was fairly easy to do. You remember I told you a story about the Russians. The first time I went to Russia, I had $10,000 strapped to my leg, which was a new experience for me. And then I thought we would go to the money changers and change. They said, no, we're going to change it on the street. And I'm like... So let me get this straight. I'm in Moscow, and I have $10,000 strapped to my leg, but I'm just going to roll my pants up and hand you all these Benjamins, and you're going to walk over to a bunch of guys and make an illegal money transaction. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Sit right here. Don't talk. (laughs) So later I said, you know, how do you square this up? Because, you know, you're pastors, and we like to (laughs) obey the law. And... Plus, this seemed a little dangerous to me. They said, well, you know, they, they kind of laughed. They said, well, we're all criminals. I said, really? What is that? He said, well, if we paid all of our taxes that were required of us, for most of us, he said for all of us, our taxes would be at least 108% of what we earn. Isn't that interesting? So you pass laws so that everyone's a criminal. And then at any moment, you can punish them. 
Welcome to Moscow. Now, that's not unlike, you know, what it was in ancient Rome. If you had to make sacrifices to a pagan god to show that you were a good citizen or even offer tribute to Caesar or counterpart to say Jesus is Lord was treason. And so you remember, they talk about this in here a little bit, but the church was by invitation only. And at the door to get in, the password was Jesus is Lord. So when you said that, you created, you, 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 you did an act of treason in order to join. This is interesting, right? So when we say the Lord be with you or Jesus is Lord, those are all, those are all treasonous acts. So it was thousands of times worse. And you can read about all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll if you read the rest of this. They'll explain it to you all. And then they had the question, you know, and if you kind of look on the first page, Tertullian walks about... Uh, this is just four lines down on the first page in the column on the right. Tertullian warns about the debilitating effect of the entertainment industry of his day. Interesting, right? Because what? You become what you touch, right? They already knew that. Chrysostom says, hey, you can't just go to church and then go to the strip club, right? I mean, what changes? Nothing changes, right? Um, but Christians decided that they would live differently. So you can read through this, and you can see that you're not alone. Christians have faced this before. One of the things that we all do, especially when we're under the gun, is we think that this is a new thing. When I was at Cambridge, they, until the 19th century, did not teach any modern church history. They only taught church history through the last ecumenical council, so only the first 800 years or so of the church, because they said... All the mistakes have already been made. Councils have already answered all of these. Just go back and see what you should do. That's interesting. We've seen it all before. So um, all of this is just variations on a theme. If you want to just go to the last page, so that would be page 11. And this is the Lenten part. So go down to where the paragraph breaks. Fasting, temperance, abstinence, purity, all were variations on a theme. The habitus, the habits, right? The disciplines that pushed back against the culture bent on the lowest common denominator morality and basic disregard for human life. So um, you, can just, you can just sort of read. The whole point of this is that Christians have always been countercultural. It's not good. I mean, many of the things that are happening. It's uh, you know, you have priests stabbed at the altar again this week in Montreal, of all places. You kind of go, really? You know, I thought the Canadians were nice to each other, but no. Um, of course, the video is up. You can watch him be stabbed in real time. Um, I know. Think about that. You and I go fishing in Canada, Jimmy. Okay, and we'll we'll take the other side of the argument. Too cold. <laughs> Mosquitoes are big, too. So anyway, just kind of, kind of think it through. You know, just kind of think it through and try to be a good witness, and there's going to be some downside to it, but you do the best you can. So uh, sort it out. My nervousness, and maybe this goes, the part I wanted to read this today, is the, the notion of Christian withdrawal. Because, you know, if everybody withdraws, how will people hear? Sure, they can say up there in the monastery there's crazy people. But the memory goes fairly quickly. I would say most people right now who aren't Christians don't really know too much about what Christians think. They... Um, <laughs> for example, our old friend Pete Ladick, right? His wife works in a daycare. 
Jean. She's the, the most wonderful woman. I mean, let's face it, she puts up with Pete. So uh, <laughs> she, I don't know, she works very, very hard. And she's like, a, she's like the California version of Val Gady. And so, you know, one of, one of the persons said to her uh, that she works with, she goes, why do you work? She goes, what do you mean, why do I work? She goes, because you're rich. She goes, what do you mean I'm rich? She goes, I've seen those guys on TV. They're all rich. Now, that was the range of this young person's experience with pastors. They're on TV and they're all rich, right? People know very little about really what Christ is all about. And you're going to hear that in this particular lesson that we're going to do today. If we all silo up, right, if we all won't engage the culture, I don't mean partake in it, right? I mean engage in it. If you're not willing to brush up against it, if you're not willing to give a good witness, if you're not willing to live in a particular way, the honest thing is that people never hear about Jesus. And so to withdraw is um, not a common step across the course of Christianity, nor is it a broad stroke that the whole church would somehow withdraw. So care, care, and also it facilitates or even engages our unwillingness to be witnesses to Jesus. So we just have to be, just have to be careful about this, I think. I'm going to start right at number eight, and I really, truly am going to finish this, even though when you look at it, you know, the, day says, the date on it says January 2nd or something like that. I'm really, going to, I'm really going to finish this today. You remember how this has gone now? God loves us, but... He doesn't invite us over uh, for a party for martinis to see him face to face. That's too hard on us. We can't take it. He's holy. We're sinful. That would undo us. And so he gives himself to us in ways that are hidden or cloaked. Or he gives himself to, to us through stuff, right? Through bread, through wine, through water, through words. All of the flesh and blood of Jesus. Okay? Among the words that he gives us are his name, and his name, or plural, his names, are the complete revelation of him for us. As much as we need to know can be pulled out of all his names. So it's important for us over time to learn the names. Now, there are so many of them. There's a lifetime of, to do this. But pay attention to what names are used. The, one of the most common ones is Jesus. Jesus uh, was... Uh, a name that everybody had. I mean, there were more guys named, you know, Jesus in Nazareth than there are in the, you know, playing professional baseball. So, you know, it's, you know, there's just a lot of Jesus. Even Jesus of Nazareth doesn't really get it all the way down. So we should figure out what this means. The name Jesus, Joshua, Yahweh saves. You know, well, okay, how does he save? Just saves the ones he loves? Saves if you do something nice? How does it work? Okay, eight, the name Jesus prevents us from making up a Savior to save ourselves. So Jesus came to us in flesh and blood, and Jesus comes to be sin. For our sake, he made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Luther called the great exchange. Jesus, who is holy, becomes sinful. We who are sinful become righteous. And you sin against this name anytime you hold your sins back and refuse to be forgiven. So when you kneel at the altar today, leave it all there. Don't take them home. If you take them home, you have to be responsible for them then. If you've got a grudge against somebody, if you hate somebody, 
if you have a habitual sin that you do nothing to prevent or engage, you know, that's a, that's a bit dangerous for you. The whole point of being here is to dump your sins over the rail and let Jesus take care of them. Don't take your sins home with you, right? Don't refuse to be forgiven or you actually sin against the name of Jesus. And I talked about this before. This name is the ultimate affirmation of you, that Jesus was wounded in flesh and blood, was raised from the dead in flesh and blood, and continued to heal in flesh and blood. So I give you this great story. I've got a bunch of things to read, and I do want to get through, so I'm a little careful here. But you remember, Peter and John go up to the temple after the resurrection. There's a lame man there. He's begging at the beautiful gate. He's like, you know, those people who wash your window and hope they get a little money from you as you're turning off under the bridge there to go to Midway. You know, it's just like that. And Peter looks at him, and the guy thinks, great, cash for lunch. And then Peter says, I'm a pastor. I'm poor. I got nothing, verse 6. I don't have gold or silver, but I give you what I got. Right? And all of you can say this. I give you what I got. In the name of Jesus, in the name. So... By the power of, not from me, sourced from him, according to his parameters, right now in real time, you can have this rise up and walk. He took him by the hand, he raised him up. Immediately, his flesh and blood were made strong. So in the name of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there you got enough going there that there's only one, Jesus, flesh and blood, the Messiah, the anointed one, who lived in Nazareth, which is a farm town. You make it smaller and smaller and smaller, and now you've got the right one. And he takes him, and he leaps up, and he walks, and he goes into the temple, and people go, what's going on? And he's like, they healed me. Last verse, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together at the Solomon. And then turn the page. And you can see that this whole sermon is just name after name after name. What, did, what just happened? Why are you staring at us? What are you looking at? The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, right? The God of our fathers. Boom, boom, boom. Name, name, name. Glorified his servant Jesus. But you denied, here's a new name, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Holy and Righteous One. You wanted a murderer instead, Barabbas. You had a choice between names, you took Barabbas. (laughs) The crowd always chooses Barabbas. And his name... By faith in his name, this man was made strong and restored to perfect health. Okay? So, restored to perfect health. Flesh and blood, he is flesh and blood. All from the name of Jesus. So, a good, great physician is how I often pray for people who are sick. But you, if you pray, oh Jesus, you know, there's a way to get from that name to people who need to be healed. You still you okay? That's an easy one, right? Now, this is a little harder. Uh, Number 11, Matthew 9. So Jesus passed on from there, and he saw Matthew sitting in the tax booth. So this is the great Caravaggio, right? We should go to Rome this afternoon just to see this, where Jesus... Did you see they just found a Caravaggio in somebody's attic worth $176 million, an unknown Caravaggio? That alone is enough reason to move to France. I mean, come on, they found a, I mean, you just kind of go, really? How could that be there for so long? But probably got moved around the war and then got forgotten, so. In any case, this beautiful Caravaggio where Jesus is reaching out to Matthew at the table, and his hand is in the shape uh, 
of God's hand when he's creating Adam on the top of the Sistine Chapel. So Caravaggio replicates the same hand. So as the Father created Adam, Jesus recreates Matthew the sinner. It's this beautiful thing. And there's this weird thing. There's a, light, there's a, there's a window in the middle, but the light isn't coming through the window. The light is coming from behind Jesus. So this little trick of the eye where Jesus should be the light of the world, and he is. The light, the sunshine doesn't come through the window. It comes from Jesus, the wrong direction. So Jesus passed on. He calls Matthew. He says, hey, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. If you look at Matthew's legs in this picture, he's about to spring out of his chair. You can see he's loaded. I mean, he just, he, uh, he, you, can hard, you can feel him about to stand up and follow. Now this, and Jesus reclined at table in the house. Now this is terribly, terribly important. This is um, ancient covenantal fellowship among the Jews, and it is also Eucharistic fellowship at the altar here. Right, this goes way back. The basic idea is you only eat and drink with the faithful. You only eat and drink with your kind. Now, here's the thing. Even uh, if, you had, if you were a Jew and had unfaithful Jews, you wouldn't perhaps eat and drink with them because they would contaminate you. So there's this whole sense of if I have dinner with you, I am all in. Okay? If I have dinner with you, I'm all in. Uh, that was true in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament. I'm all in. This is what, you know, you bend your knee at the altar. This is what I confess. So, this is stunning. Because here's this guy who's wandering around talking about the kingdom of God is here and healing people, talking about the holiness of God. Apparently has the juice because he can make blind people see and he can take, you know, a kid's lunch and turn it into a feeding for 5,000. But people are stunned by all of this. He seems to have all the goods. And then he does this very strange thing, which is, instead of launching an IPO on the strength of this, no, he, you know, runs from Brooklyn. Anyway, so, just testing you. Yeah, you didn't think that was funny. Okay, hold on. It'll, you, you may someday. Uh, you know, so, so here's the thing. Jesus is sort of man of the people, right? Or, more importantly, man of sinners. So just this, that's all in this, and he reclined at table, which means, you know, he's not just passing by. He's, this, he's going to be there for a good long while. This is how, when you relax into it, to recline at the table is always an image of coming back to Eden, or living within the covenant, right? Or being comfortable with God. All these things are going on in the background, just in that little sentence. Jesus passed on from there, I'm sorry, Jesus reclined at house and reclined at table in house. And behold, lots of tax collectors, so these would be Matthew's pals. Hey, Jesus is coming up. Want to come for lunch? Jesus is coming. So all these tax collector pals, right? Many tax collectors. And of course, tax collectors were considered traitors because they took money from their fellow Jews to give to the Romans. And of course, they hated them. Uh, you know, this is why Zacchaeus is up a tree. He's short but he's also probably going to get stabbed to death in the middle of a crowd because, you know, they're not favored. So he goes there with you know, tax collectors and sinners, and this regularly happens with Jesus, that the sinners come in. That may seem odd to you that people who are sinners are always around, but it was the way of uh, hospitality. So at the end of any 
more formal dinner, there was the custom of opening the doors and letting the poor come in. Uh, we do this here. When you have a wedding and we say, if you have a little extra money, since you're spending gobs of money on a wedding, could you throw something into the pastor's fund for the poor? That's just an old Jewish custom that you would open the doors and let the sick and the poor and the lame kind of eat the crumbs from the table, right? So this is partly why so many of Jesus, there's, there's people who can approach him and touch him and anoint him and cry on him and beg him. But in this case, they're even at the table. So these people are at the table. They came and they were reclining with Jesus. These are my people. This is my family. These are mine. Okay, you see how different this is from siloing out or not going on or we're happy with what we got or let those people go to hell, right? Or Jesus doesn't love them or we're better than they are. If they can only get better, you see all the normal dodges that church people would use. Jesus doesn't know anything about that. So Jesus reclined at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees came. (laughs) And as David Skayer says to young seminarians at Fort Wayne, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to you guys. So you all are free, right? The pastor showed up, and they saw this, and they said to his disciples, you know, what's up with this guy? Why does he eat, engage, live with, take his family, tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, hey, if you're well, there's no need of a physician, right? Sick people, they need a physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician. So this is where the this is where the name great physician comes from. But those who are sick, yeah. You should go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is always a good thing for pastors to remember. The heart of God is mercy. God is love. The beating heart of God is misericordia this tender-heartedness that sort of dies for the life of the world. And so what Jesus wants from people who follow him is mercy. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a weird phrase, but here's the thing. If you have all the answers, Jesus has nothing for you. If you already know all the answers, if you never ask a question, if you think everything is just fine, If you're that good at lying to yourself, if you think we're way better than everybody else, right? Look, the penalty for not listening is to stay the way you are. That's the penalty. The penalty for not listening is you never get better. The penalty for not asking questions is you never get better. The penalty for thinking you got it all figured out is that nothing changes. And of course, Jesus is here to change everything. I came not to call the righteous. You know, this is facetious a bit because who's righteous, right? Hey, if you don't need me, you don't need me. The gospel is resistible, right? But if you're a sinner, let's have lunch, right? And then the next page, I sort of give you this just because it says the same thing. This is a bit of a mystifying text, but it basically means this. Jesus says, says, says to people, hey, you don't, you don't want to play with me. I want to play with you, but you won't come out to play. Look, what do I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling their playmates. Let's play. We played for you, but you wouldn't dance, so you won't be happy with us. We sang a dirge, and you wouldn't cry, so you won't be sad with us. You won't engage. You won't play. 
There's distance between us. Look, John comes neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. So John comes and he keeps all the rules better than the rule keepers. And what do they say? That's demonic. I come, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. You say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunk. And he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. So Jesus absorbs this and even says, this is what you say about me. Wisdom is justified by its deeds, which means, in the end, wisdom out, right? It sorts itself out. So the gospel comes and gives you a gift and loves you and wants you. Um, If you say no to it for so long, uh, Jesus will let you have your way, but he'd rather not. Now, just technically taking this apart, Jesus is neither righteous nor sinner. This is point 12. You notice that Jesus is distinguishing between righteous people and sinner people. Right, so you say, okay, which one is Jesus? Well, first, he's not a sinner. You can read through the text. They're always watching him, trying to catch him in a sin, but they never do. But he's also not righteous, not in the sense of being a rule keeper like a Pharisee. Right? So when Jesus comes to the Pharisees, he sounds like John the Baptist. He sounds like an Old Testament prophet. He sounds like Ezekiel today in the Old Testament. But you'll notice, and this is, and, and that's easy to do, by the way. I mean, come on. It's easy to put the law on people. This is easy. It's easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. Right? This is why pastors who go from town to town and give the same speech about injustice and poverty and um, you know, all the rest. They're not wrong. They're actually right. It's just so easy. You can land in any town in America or the world and give that. Give that. It's so easy, right? All the sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's so easy to condemn. It's easy. What's hard is being a friend to sinners. And I want to give you a couple examples how Jesus works. And so what I hope will happen is that we, too, will act in this way. It's, even as a, as a pastor, I mean, the easiest thing in the world is to say to people, hey, you don't measure up. It's easy to look into their hearts or to see their situation or to have empathy for their struggles, or to know how exhausted people are when year after year they pray for the same things. And they don't happen. So, you know, what does Jesus do with this, right? So you have this great example of who Jesus is. He meets sinners as if he can't tell the difference between him and them, right? Jesus comes to them like a friend. Now, of course, the immediate um, reaction is, hey, how will anybody ever change if we just don't give them hell? Because, you know, that's why people change if you really give them hell, right? Yeah. Just, just pound on them, you know? But Jesus is so different. He sits down with people, and he doesn't notice their sins. Or more interestingly, they notice that he doesn't notice their sins. You remember the woman at the well? Jesus comes, how about a drink? It's the middle of the day. There's a range of reasons she could be there in the middle of the day. Nobody draws water in the middle of the day. It's too hot. You get all your work done early. She's there in the middle of the day. Why is she there? Because everybody knows she's a whore. And she's not a Jew, so she's chased away. if you need water, you can draw at noon when it's, you know, 113 degrees in the shade. And Jesus comes and says, hey, how about a drink? And she, he, he just is like, 
what you're a Jew and you know I'm here in the middle of the day and you know what that means and so you're a man and I'm a woman in a culture where men and women don't talk alone and you should be smarter than this. All right, that's, how, that's her reaction. And then Jesus says, tell me. Tell me. Tell me your story. Well, you know, I've had a husband or two or three or five, and then the person I'm living with now isn't my husband, so nothing new under the sun. And Jesus says, ooh, the solution for this is living water. Right? There's a solution here. Living water. That'd be great. I wouldn't have to come in the middle of the day. And I wouldn't have to be exposed to people all the time. If you could just love me enough to give me some of that living water, that'd be great. And Jesus does. And she goes. What happens? She becomes a great witness. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And in that she means everything I ever did wrong and now how he regards me as right. It's a startling thing, right? You see how different that is than giving people hell, which is so much of Christianity. So listen, if you just listen, you know, there's them and us, and never the two shall meet. Well, you know, Jesus has a different way about this. Um, 16, Jesus makes himself just like them. He becomes unreservedly accessible to them. And what happens then is that when Jesus makes content, I'm sorry, when Jesus makes contact with them, uh, suddenly everything changes. Now, it's interesting because it's not like Jesus doesn't care. It's just that when Jesus comes close to people, And he lets his life and his words and his actions do the talking. People sort it out for themselves. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. And this is why you can have confidence that you don't have to proceed by bashing people to death with your Bible. What you say and what you do in the way of Jesus carries the energy of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who convicts a sinner's heart and relieves that same heart by the way of the gospel. Even in preaching, it's this difficult task of, we have kids that are two years old to people who are 92. And we got people who are Unbelievers, and we got people who have been to church in years, and then we got some of you who come every week and you go to Bible study too, and you show up again at Bible study, and frankly, we start to wonder about you. And, um, you know, then you get a text, and you're supposed to figure that out, law and gospel right, across the range of age and maturity. And there's no way that a pastor can actually do that except to say, if you say the words of Jesus, you can proceed with the confidence that the Holy Spirit will apply them properly to different people. So if we say, you know, honor your father and mother, the children who are honoring their fathers and mothers can say, whew, Jesus is pleased with me and I need to stick with him to do that. So the Holy Spirit puts it to them as gospel. And then the kids that aren't, uh, 
the Holy Spirit puts it to them as law. Um, ooh, I'm disobeying Jesus again. I ought to do better. This is the only way we can survive as the church. But the great confidence in the Holy Spirit is not that you're brave enough to stand up and beat the hell out of people. It takes zero talent and insight. What it takes is the great confidence to align everything you say and do with Christ and then let the Holy Spirit do what he does. And at the end of the day, you say, that's what he did. And it's precisely the same for you because that's the way it is with Jesus. Jesus comes to sinner after sinner, to the woman at the well, to the centurion, to the woman whose daughter is demon-possessed, to Peter who denies him and then tries to block him from the cross, right? In every case, Jesus does the same thing. The only condemnation from Jesus comes to people who basically are trying to kill him. But for everybody else, this great generosity of spirit and the confidence that his presence and his words will do what they say that they will rightly divide sins from not sins or sins from holiness, and that that holiness becomes available to people as forgiveness insofar as they confess. This is how Jesus moves through, and I just have to say, this is not primarily what I observe in most churches. Right? Right? They kind of go one way or the other. There's nothing wrong and everything is okay. Or... If you could just be good Christians like us, neat Christians, then maybe, you know, blah, blah. Um, walking a completely different way is Jesus, who is a friend of sinners. So I've pushed you all the way now um, down through the page of 17 and 18. The difference between us and Jesus is the difference between holiness and sin. But Jesus brings that to us as a gift. How will people ever change? If you're loving to people, how will people ever change? If you just don't pound away at them, how will people ever change? This is how they will change. Um, You do remember the old text in Romans, um, Paul's epistle, where it says, grace, sin abounds, and grace abounds all the more. Do you know that text? Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's two Greek words that are going on there. Sin abounds is... um, the word for two plus two plus two plus two. Right? Sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more is actually the word for multiplication. So two times two, four times two, eight times two, sixteen. And if you keep going, it only gets better. Right? It only gets better if you keep going. What does this mean? This means that a little bit of law and a lot of gospel. Or as Walter said once to young seminary students, when you're preaching, remember you're preaching to Christians. Don't treat them like pagans. And even pagans you treat as if they're the sort of people that God died for. How will anybody ever change? Well, change is Jesus' business. And this is at 18. Jesus isn't indifferent to sin. How do people change? They become, people change when Jesus becomes their friend. Look, 
if Jesus is this hot burning fire, and if you touch him, that will be the end of you, why would anybody ever change? Why would you rush toward a hot burning fire that's going to consume you? No. Jesus in flesh and blood nailed to the cross for your atonement, for your forgiveness, sacrifice for you, who loves you, who would do anything to have you back, whose only wishes that all persons be saved. It's even in the Old Testament today. God does not take pleasure in the death of any sinner. Right. How will people ever change? Well, Jesus comes to them and he loves them and they notice there's something different about him, not just in quality or quantity, but something ontologically fancy philosophical word for he's a different kind of person, a different kind of being. Right? There's something in Jesus. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Right? There's something different about him. And people begin to notice the difference, and they begin to notice it's a difference between them, so he causes some self-reflection. And then, you know, the woman who's on her sixth husband can kind of say, is she alienated by what he says? No. She is engaged and sees possibility. And he gives her living water, and there's hope for her. And when there's hope for her, there's possibility for change. And when there's change, there's new life. And when new life follows Jesus, then the angels rejoice because another person has entered the kingdom of heaven. The woman caught in adultery, right? Three times. Who condemns you? Do the people who are going to stone you condemn you? No. Do you condemn yourself? Hmm. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Boom, boom, boom. The three places we need to be reconciled, to those we sin against, to ourselves, and to Christ himself. And when Jesus says to that woman caught in adultery, and caught, right, so we're not disputing the facts, caught, she doesn't dispute the facts either. Neither do I condemn you means people don't condemn you, you don't condemn you, you need to catch up on your own because nobody, you're the only problem here. Let's move on. Let's go sin no more. Last words of confession, go, you are free. It's taken directly from that story. So anything you've done can be forgiven and anything those whom you love Whatever they've done can be forgiven. And all those horrible people out there that you read about in the newspaper, see on television, they can be forgiven too because Jesus is always with the sinners. In fact, Jesus is their friend. Um, and now I'm just going to finish with 19, which there's a few more texts behind this, but you can read them for fun this week. The righteous noticed this and they were irritated because, you know, we're better than they are. Okay, you can have your own club, but Jesus isn't part of it. As a friend, he acts as Yahweh saving. He will save his people from their sins. He wipes out the difference between him and them because when he comes in contact with them, he makes them holy too. So you go to the Eucharist this morning and the body and blood will touch your tongue and you are holy. You are forgiven. There's no rub between you and God. God loves you. God guides you. God is your Father. Jesus is your Savior. The Holy Spirit possesses you. And you can speak and act the way Jesus would speak and act in whatever you engage. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Singular, my commandment. And later, 
What's the question? What's the one thing, the one word, the one thing, the one word that fulfills the law and the prophets? Love. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So the single commandment, love, love each other the way I love you, without reservation, prodigal son kind of love, rushing toward the sinners and acting like nothing ever happened. Greater love has no one than this, it laid out life for his friends. That's Jesus. Jesus, Yahweh saves. He'll go to the cross for you. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Follow along. Let's go. No longer do I call you servants. You're not waiting at the table. You're reclined at the table. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. You've got no idea. But I, I've called you friends. And all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. There's no secrets here. Right? We live by love. Everybody's in. Nobody's out. The only reason you're out is if you want to be out. The only reason you're out is if you hold on to your sins. That's not a good idea. You should leave your sins here. That's why there's a church. You didn't choose me. I chose you. So let Jesus do the verbs. The gospel is when Jesus does the verbs. Jesus comes to you. Jesus chooses you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus dies for you. Jesus takes away your burdens. Jesus gives you his Holy Spirit. Jesus pushes you forward. Jesus loves you. Jesus goes before you and behind you and around you. Jesus sends his angels for you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus has dinner with you. Jesus sticks by you. I chose you and I appointed you that you should bear fruit. Jesus bears fruit through you. And your fruit should abide. So this should be a place filled with fruit. So that whatever you ask of my Father, you've got to get all the way here to get to the name. Now whatever you ask, given all the foregoing previous 40 minutes, right? Now whatever you ask in my name, you can have it. It's great stuff. These things I command you, so what? You love one another. So being loved goes with being friends, goes with being forgiven, goes with prayer, goes with the name, goes with getting what you want. But of course, you would never want anything that Jesus didn't want you to have. You see how easy this is? And how hard this is? Right? The Christian life, this is what it is. But if you can just on these two square blocks, like just for the people who are just for each other, if you can sort of hold it together, you know, you become what Jesus says you are, a light on a hill, Right? A light in a dark place, right? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And, but it all comes from Jesus acting, forgiving you, and loving you. That's how it works. So you don't shy away from sinners. You touch them and try to bring them in. Okay? Uh, we should go. I love you. I'll see you um, Sunday. Well, I hope I'll see you Wednesday for dinner and prayers and confession if you want to come. But then... Next week, the rose-colored vestments come out. You know, it's a nice—it's uh, a nice week in the church. Jesus will lighten our load a little bit on the way. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks for everything. See you next week. Oh, no, if you put money in the basket, People's Resource Center, quick, throw $1,000 in the basket. Sorry. <laughs>